0: Amen. Amen. Well, one of the major themes uh, in Paul's letter to the Philippians was the theme of unity. And uh, in chapter 2, in verse 2, he wrote these words He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Paul understood that if the church at Philippi was going to be successful in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they were going to actually make disciples of all nations as, as Christ had called them to be, they were going to have to be unified. That means that they were going to have to think alike. Or as Paul writes here, they would have to, ha- they would have to be of one mind. Amos 3.3 reminds us, how can two walk together unless they both agree? And the answer to that is they, they can't, or at least they can't in fellowship or they can't effectively in getting anything done. But the question here in the text is, but whose mind are they supposed to have? Is Paul telling people that they should have his mind, or should they have the mind and think like Timothy or Epaphroditus? Well, none of the above. What Paul is calling us to do is to actually have the mind of Christ. That's the key to being unified one with another. For Paul, he saw a very direct connection between how we think and how we live. Uh, In other words, what you believe about God— How you view him, what you think about him, uh, what you think about concerning his will will ultimately dictate and determine how you live your everyday lives. That's very clear in the word of God. And so this is why Paul has a huge emphasis on theology, huge emphasis on what we believe. It's in fact why he is so harsh in his critique of the Judaizers who were trying to bring false theology in the church. Paul knew that if the Philippians were to walk into work together, they would have to think alike. But it's not just that we think alike as a church. That's not all that's important. It's also important how we think. What I mean by that is this, is when I talk about what we think, I'm talking specifically about the truths that we hold to and understand and agree upon. When I talk about how we think, I'm talking specifically about attitudes, Listen, there are a numerous, there, there are many, many churches that have been divided over doctrinal issues and have split and been divisive with one another. But there are many more churches than that that have been divided because of bad attitudes, and so I think that's the very thing that's happening in the text here. I don't think it's the theology thing. I think it's the attitude thing. And so what Paul's going to do, though, is he's going to holistically, just in these two verses, really give us some, uh, some instruction on how to be unified in the midst of our Christian relationships. That includes a church, that includes a marriage, a family, or any other Christian relationship that you might have. So let's, let's look, first of all, here's kind of the overarching idea of the two text, unity comes when we agree in the Lord. Unity comes when we agree in the Lord. Now, notice what Paul says. You're going to think I'm really creative uh, because I basically just plagiarized the text of scripture for my first point. It says in verse 2, he says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, it's important that we understand exactly what's happening here. We refer to this as the book of Philippians, right? In all actuality, it's a letter. It's a personal letter written by the apostle Paul from Rome uh, over to this small group of believers in the city of Philippi. And he's in prison. He writes it, and then he sends it through Epaphroditus, who brings it to the church. And when he brings it to the church, he would have handed it to one of the elders. The elders would have gathered everybody together, just like we are here today, well, some of us. The rest of the half comes later. But anyway, they gather together and then he opens up this papyri and he begins to read the letter from Paul. And imagine the expectation of everyone. They wanted to hear from Paul. They want to know how he's doing. They want to receive some instructions from him. So they're all on the edge of the sea like you guys are when I preach the word on Sunday morning. And as they begin to read through this letter, uh, the excitement begins to fade and some of them begin to nod off, usually about the nineteenth. Minute part of the sermon, and, and some things never changed, and they begin to nod off. And then all of a sudden, they get to chapter four. Well, we get to chapter four. They didn't have chapters during that time, but they get to these verses, and all of a sudden, everybody wakes up because. He calls out two women that are sitting amongst them and he gets on to them to the division that they're bringing within the church. And, and you could almost imagine, I can almost hear this little voice over in the corner of someone's house where they say, oh no, he didn't. Yeah, And, and, and they're like, oh yes, he did. And not only did he identify them, he identified them by name, Eudia and Syntyche. Now Paul doesn't ultimately tell us exactly why there is a division between these two ladies. Again, we'd, we probably don't think that it's theological because Paul had a tendency to correct those theological uh, uh, wrongdoings and bad theology. Instead, this is probably something a little bit more personal. This is probably where these two women, I don't know what it is, uh, they just didn't get along. Maybe their personalities just kind of rubbed against each other. You know that, right? Folks That you, you're like, "I I don't know what's wrong. There's just some tension between us, and it's even hard sometimes to be able to even nail down. Well, whatever the problem was, it was the issue probably was not big, but it was becoming a big issue. You understand what I mean? And so what happens is, is it's big enough to where the word of the dissension goes all the way back to Paul in Rome from Philippi. And then and Paul finds it important enough to take his long piece of papyri and actually write about it and put these two names in the letter to call them out. It's that big of a deal that Paul feels like he needs to publicly address it. Now, Paul's correction here is not like the correction of the Judaizers. Remember, when he begins to correct them, it's very harsh. In fact, he, he, he calls them the enemies of the cross. By the way, that's pretty good indication that they're not true believers in Jesus Christ if you're an enemy of the cross, right? Well, that's not how he identifies these two women. Instead, in verse 3, if you look along in the latter part of verse 3, he refers to them as fellow workers or his fellow workers in fact he goes on to make a point that they labored side by side with me and the gospel with clement not really sure who that is and the rest of my fellow workers that word labored there in the greek is a really descriptive greek word that is really used in the area of athletics and it's talking about the straining towards a specific goal these women were the real deal They were believers in Jesus Christ. They worked within the church. In fact, they were working with Paul side by side, being faithful to actually share the gospel with those who were lost and in the process of making disciples of Jesus Christ. These two women, at least some ultimately think that they may have been two of the very first converts uh, in the church itself. You remember when Paul comes to Philippi with Timothy and others, and he comes down, and there's no synagogue, so they work their way down to a little river, and there is a group of women, according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 13. Uh, Paul says that, or, or the word says that they spoke to the women who had come together to pray. Some believe that these two women might have been the very first converts of the church, or at least in the early converts of the church. If that was true, then everybody else in the church knew them then everybody else in the church respected them and their role within the church. And many of them may have actually come to faith in Jesus Christ because of these two ladies' uh, 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 um, labor. They were the fruit of their labor. So this is a huge deal. Now, some might sit back and think, well, just because they're in the church— And they're part of it, and just because they're working in the church doesn't necessarily mean that they're a believer in Jesus Christ. And we would all identify that, right? One day, God's going to separate the wheat and the tares in the church, and some are not going to be believers. What a horrible day uh, that is. But what the Scriptures tell us, Paul removes any doubt of the sincerity of these women, the maturity of these women, and the fact that they are indeed in the faith when he adds the phrase, whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life. In ancient cities, there used to actually be an actual book, an actual registry, where people who were citizens of that particular town, their name would be placed in that particular book. And by having your name in that book, you had all the rights and privileges as a citizen in that particular city. Well, in the Old Testament, that concept of that registry begins to kind of weave its way into the Jewish community, and it begins to become identified to speak of those who are part of the covenant family and the New Testament especially in the book of Revelation we read it and we begin to see it being used for those who are identified being of citizens of Jesus Christ. So in essence Paul's just saying, "Man, these are the real deal. They're true believers in Christ. They are mature. They are leaders even in the church. They've had great influence in the church." And you say, "What's the significance of that?" It's this it means that no matter where you are in this process of your walk with Christ, whether you're a new believer or whether you've been around for 20, 30, 40 years, if you have no position or if you're an elder in a church, wherever you are, you and I are always susceptible from causing divisions in the midst of our Christian relationships, including the church of God. We're always susceptible. We're always susceptible of being the very cause of what divides two groups of people, what divides our relationship, our our marriage, our our church, uh, our our families. We always have the propensity to ultimately be a part of this. So the question is, how do we bring it back together? What do we need to be able to do to make sure that we're not that? Well, Paul very descriptively, I think, gives us two ways. First of all, we must share the mind of Christ we have to share the mind of Christ. Now, notice when he says, agree in the Lord, the word agree there means to think in the same way. How many times have you been in a relationship that was just racked full of contention? Anybody? All right, you're afraid to raise your hands. I'm not talking about the relationship you're in right now with the person that's sitting next to you, all right? But think about your whole life and think about how many relationships that there was points of contention in, Right? Uh, There was a conflict. There was a a a problem there. And and how many times did you think, or at least maybe even say something to this effect? You're not listening to me. You're not understanding where it is that I'm coming from. Look, man, you're just not getting what it is that I'm all about, and what it is that where 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 it is that I'm coming from. You know, much of the tension in our lives and in our relationships really stem from the fact that you think in a very defined, specific way. And, for whatever reason, the providence of God, that God places us into relationships that, for whatever reason, they think completely different than we do. Anybody in one of those relationships, right? It's almost like those people that you really love, you see them, and they talk, and it's almost like you're talking, and you're like, I knew I loved you for some reason, because you're just like me, right? And, and it's just kind of the idea. And so what happens is, in those relationships that one's thinking one way, the other is thinking the other, we spend an incredible amount of energy, an incredible amount of time, an incredible amount of effort and emotion trying to get the other person not only to th- understand what we're thinking, but to think like we're thinking. Uh, now, we won't say it out loud, but in our hearts, our hearts are saying, if I can just get this person to see the brilliance of my thinking and the error of their way, then there would be no problem. We'd all be able to get along, Right? Yeah. yeah, that's what she thinks. Yeah. Um, no, we, we all kind of think that way and we think in those particular terms. And, and, and so what happens here is when he says to agree, he's not saying do all you can to get other people to agree with your point of view. He's not he's not saying to work hard or to argue in order for them to get to think like you. Instead The word, when he says to to agree, he means agree in Christ, which means to submit yourself to the mind of Christ. He says the way for you and I to be unified is to see things the way that Jesus sees things. Not the way that you see them or the way that I see them, but we're able to be unified because we're seeing things in the way that Christ sees them. Are, Are you getting that? And the way that we do that is through what? Is through what? Word, the word, word. Yes, through the Bible. All right, that's how we that's how we come to think as he thinks. The word of God in Romans twelve two says this. He says, Do not be conformed to the world. In other words, don't let the world world pressure you into living and acting and thinking like they do. Here's the way to not be like the world. Here's the way to change the way that you act and to change the way that you live in a way that is sinful. He says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is why discipleship is so important. Listen, this is why being in church is so important. This is why small group is so important. Because when we first born again, we look very little like Jesus Christ apart from his grace. He wants to save us so that we become like him. How do we become like him? By learning his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, submitting to the teaching of God's word so that each day we're more and more and more like him. It's through the word. Here's what Paul is ultimately saying. When you and I do not think like Christ and think the thoughts of Christ that is blatantly placed out in the word of God, that's when divisions begin to happen within a church. Now, let me give you an example of this. And I think that this might hit home with with many of you. I I hope it does. There is this thing called the Great Commission that we talk about. I had somebody just a couple weeks ago, dude, why are you guys so transfixed on this whole Great Commission thing? It makes me realize that we're not thinking the same right there's there's a little bit difference and so let me tell you what happens when the great commission just to make sure that we're clear go into all the world preach the gospel making disciples of all nations we we all that, that same page all right and so when 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 a church finally begins to get that and i think our church is finally starting to get that at least in a certain case not everybody is on board okay because when people begin to get that all of a sudden people are like hey man i want to go I want to go, send me, send me. I want to go to that country. Other people are saying, hey, I want to give money to this. We need more money in the budget going for those people over there. And instantly, as glorious as that is, there's a divide within the church. And there's a divide within the church because some are sitting back, and they're wonderful people, and they're believers in Jesus Christ, but they sit back and they sit there and go, why in the world would you send money over there? Why in the world would you go over there to help those people over there When we have people in our own community that need help and we can spend the money right here. Do you you see what's happening here? Now, I'm not saying that person that sits there and says, what about here? Their motivation may be very true. they, They might at least be thinking that that is truth and they're doing it out of the wrong motivation. But do you see how now that all of a sudden we have a conflict? All of a sudden people are like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And people are like, no, let's stay, let's stay, let's stay. Both put their legs in, and then nobody wants to talk to the staying people and nobody wants to talk to the going people, right? And so we're divided. More money there, more money here. Are you guys at least with me? You must not have ever worked in the church or on a finance team, okay? So uh, if you don't understand what I'm saying, so let me, let me lay some things out. So for those that are like, that's ridiculous to go over there and to be able to do that when we have needs here. When we think that way, and I want to be gentle with this and compassionate with this, when we think that way, we're not thinking like Christ. We're not thinking like Christ. So one of the problems is the very foundation of that type of thinking is skewed. It's off. Because what it, in essence, is saying is that by saying, why would you go there when there's needs here, it's suggesting as though we don't care about here, we only care about there. Or that... We're only going to help there, and we're not going to work here. That couldn't be further from the truth. A person who truly grasps the mind of Christ in the Great Commission knows that it's not there or here. It's not an either or. It's a both and. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So it's not one or the other. The second reason thing that is off is that it's not thinking like Christ and understanding Christ's will because when you say, why should we go there when there are people who are in need here? Simplest explanation I can give you, and I don't mean to be sarcastic with this, is because Jesus said to. You you got that? But what people will say and what they're feeling is, but it doesn't make sense. We should, these are our neighbors, so there's an emotional thing. But, But we could be, more helpful here. So that's a cognitive reason thing. Listen to me very carefully. When people in the church, when you and I in our own life, when we allow reason, emotion, or tradition to trump the authority of the clear word of God, there cannot be any unity. For all of us, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're thinking, no matter what kind of reason, what seems right, what doesn't seem right, what brings us together is to say we're going to submit all those things and we're going to do what it is that God calls us to do. Now, uh, back, back to that whole Great Commission part, we love Nassau County. We love the people here. In fact, we love them so much, we have 650 missionaries that we have right here in Yule Lake. You got that? It's as we are going. We love them. And the people that sit there and say, why are you so concerned there? There are ministries that, we, that you're, the money from this church that you give is going right here. Right here. We are now looking to plant a church right here. Why are we doing that? We're not trying to sit there and go, well, maybe they'll get off our backs if we start giving some money here. No, 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 no. no. It's the mind of Christ. And, and, and for some of you, let me just say this, this one thing. I'm running out of time. Dan, you took up too much time this morning. All right, listen, l- l- let, me, let me make sure that we get this. I know some people are like, I've got a heart for India, or I've got a heart for South Africa, or I've got a heart for the kids in Honduras, or I've got a heart uh, for here locally, and that just doesn't interest me. I think there's something a little bit off there. Okay, l- let me explain why. I do believe that God lays on each one of our hearts, maybe a group or a place, and I think that's how God makes sure things get done, Right? I mean, if some people are like, hey man, I think it's all about the welcoming, and somebody else is like, I think it's all about the parking, we can instantly have a division without recognizing that both are equally valuable. Are you with me? I think the heart of Christ is ultimately that we sit there and go, I want to win people everywhere. I want to see people come to faith in Christ everywhere here in our community into the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see that? That is thinking as Christ thinks. That's the mind of Christ. When we have that, if we don't have that, we're in trouble. It's why studying the word of God and knowing it in clear doctrine is so essential for unity of a church so that we're all thinking like him. Second thing, second thing. i got to go quickly, so listen faster. All right, second thing is this, is that not only do we need to share the mind of Christ, we need to share the heart of Christ the heart of Christ. Now, thinking like Christ is more of the thinking, the thoughts of Christ, the truths of God that we find in the word of God. But the the heart of Christ is really talking about the attitudes. Now, James actually gives us an understanding of why there are actual divisions within the church, why there are actual divisions in marriages, in families, in any other Christian relationship. And it's not just simply because some think like Jesus and some are not thinking like Jesus, okay? All right, got that? that, that, that there's a difference in, in knowledge of the word of God. He goes, what's actually the problem is, James says, and he gives us the answer in James 4.1, is that it's really an issue of the heart. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so that you fight and you quarrel. In other words, the root cause of the division of Euty and Syntyche and every other division in any Christian relationship you have is because there is an attitude of selfishness and self-centeredness at the center of it. That we are instantly saying is, I want what I want, and if I can't have it, and I can't, if I can't have it, and you're not willing to give it to me, I'm willing to be able to fight for it. And it's through that fighting that that tension begins to happen. Is anybody sticking with me at all on this? All right. I mean, this is me through and through. And don't you dare say, that's right, that's you. All right, don't say that. All right. I know. I know it's me. All right. And so, so this, is, this is kind of the way that we're working. So he, 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 he gives that example. It was wrong for them to insist on getting their own way at the expense of other people. If you seek to get what you want, what your own flesh wants, and it's going to cost somebody else something personally for you to be able to get it, it's not the attitude that Christ wants with us. Okay? You guys you with me? Some of you are like, are you talking about marriage? Yes, I'm talking about marriage. Right. Talking about church? Yes. Talking about me and my children? Yes. Talking about all those things. So, What's interesting is Paul has already laid down the instruction for these guys. Did you notice that Paul, very similar in his writings, he always gives all the theology in the beginning. And many of you are like, oh, let's get through the theology. So we can get to the practicality. But after he gives the theology, he now is given the application to what he had already instructed us biblically and theologically. In Philippians 2, 3, he had already given them the answer. He says, do nothing from robbery or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In chapter 2 and verse 4, he said, look not after your own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is radically two different things. One is fight for my rights at the expense of other people to get what I want. Jesus is saying, flip that. He says, give up your rights for the benefit of other people. This is, this is what he says about Jesus himself. He says, have this mind. Some of your translations, this is in two five. He says, have this mind or have this attitude among yourself, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Huge difference there. I read this passage in a funeral yesterday, Romans 15, 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Let me tell you why this is so important. Because even in churches, sometimes those who have the right theology are the very ones that are causing the divisions inside of the church. They will sit there and they will say, but I'm right. I know the word of God. And what they begin to do is they begin to place truth above love and above the well-being of everybody else. Look, We see this in our marriages. You even hear it in relationships. I mean, you hear it in counseling, if you ever do any counseling. Yeah, but I'm right, and he's, he's wrong. He's an idiot, right? And so you're sitting there going, okay, well, you might be right, but I think there's something missing here. You have the right mind, but you're lacking the heart. When people in a church sit there and go, hey, listen, guys, who cares about the people that don't get the great commission? Forget it. Let's just move forward and let's just put this through and let's just do what God wants to do at the glory of God. In other words, let's just dump on the rest of the body of Christ. Let's just dump on those who are weaker and lose our strength to be able to, 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 to motivate us and to do what it ultimately is. Listen, I'm saying this because I know it all too well. I feel like I was that, that brash pastor. I pray that I'm not anymore, but that brash pastor that said, well, it doesn't matter, I'm right. That's all that ultimately matters that I'm right. It's not all that matters is just that you're right. You can't have unity unless we both agree with the mind of Christ. But what we have to do is we have to be loving, caring, nurturing. And as Paul says to Timothy, he says to preach the whole counsel of the word of God with Patience. Patience. Men, you're leading your children, and you know a whole lot about fishing. But if you don't have patience, what is it? A pastor and pastors can have all kind of knowledge of the Word of God, but unless he has patience, then, then what good is it? Is there any unity there? No, because you can hold on to what is right and push out weaker brethren who may not know and not have compassion and love for them. And there will still be division, even though you claim that you are right and you might very well be. Paul says it, I think, in a very simple way in 1 Corinthians thirteen two. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Let me tell you what it takes for unity. It takes you and I to have the mind of Christ. The only way to get the mind of Christ is careful, constant study in the word of God. You know it's interesting to me it's interesting how you could preach a message and some people seem to really grasp it and other people are like stuck right you know I love those emails hey you know that really doesn't mean anything to me but thanks for trying those are nice I, those are that gets me up to try harder next week right and so you're like ah. um are there any insurance positions open that I can sell insurance so there's those are the kind of thoughts that kind of go through your mind but 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 let me let me just say this is We have to work at knowing his word. If we're going to be unified in this and moving forward and doing what God has called us to do, we have to be able to walk together, and that's only by our minds being on the same plane. And and let me suggest this. It's not only just knowing what is right. It's loving right. Not only the right mind, the mind of Christ, but the heart of Christ, where we are gracious and patient and loving towards each other and one another so that we all stay unified to do what God has called us to do. This is really a a, a whole venture. Notice one last thing before we close. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, what I love, if you look at commentaries, there's like 16,000 pages written on who is his companion. Ooh, who's the companion? Pastor Mike, who's that companion that he's talking about? This is what I say. The people at Philippi knew who the companion was. We don't need to know who the companion was. All right, don't just let that go. Don't miss the point. The point that he's talking about is this He's saying divisions, disagreements, and anger and discord between two people impact the whole body. Impact the whole body. You cannot sin in a vacuum. Your sin always impacts those around you. Your division always impacts those around you. Do do we get that? There's no such thing as saying, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm not hurting anybody. You are either helping or hurting. There's no in between. There's no neutral. And so what he's saying is this idea of division, it takes the whole body of Christ. Sometimes it takes you and I to be able to go to a brother and sister in Christ that are not getting along and say, hey, guys. Can't we all just get along no i'm just I'm, I'm just kidding, we just you just need to work with them and you need to talk with them and you need to walk alongside of them. you need to care for them and it's not because you're a crooked nose sin sniffer, you know, oh, it smells like sin, I see it i'm going to attack it no, it's not that said so, i didn't have to do that, I actually have a crooked nose, some of you might know that, but But the point is, is because of the love of Jesus Christ. And and what motivates us to do this? So we can be unified. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's what motivates us. But what really motivates us is that we have been unified in Christ Jesus by his love for us, his death for us on the cross, because he has been willing to unify us through his service to us so that we could be unified in the same way we ought to do the same for others. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. I praise you. I thank you for your word. God, I pray this morning for our congregation for the mind of Christ. But the mind of Christ doesn't just happen, it's through a continual, perpetual study of the word of God. Give us those desires. But, God, equally as important is the heart of Christ to be patient with one another, to love one another in you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand.